mommy loves me because she always plays with me and she does nice things for me. Well, you know when somebody loves you, when they do something nice for you, like yesterday my mom bought me a pet, Gecko. And it's really cool. I know why my mom and dad loves me. Cause I'm their child. My mom fixes me dinner. Well, they give me a hug and they play with me. Let me tell you what the things I did do for my sister instead. Sometimes when she firms up, because all sisters do that, my mom sometimes doesn't know that. So I run and tell her. They start like wanting to be closer to you, to like, sometimes they even offer you flowers. But sometimes you're allergic to the kinds in your even though they're your favorite color. So, but if someone doesn't love you, that means like, you know, so they kind of want to stay far away from you, don't care where they sit, and they don't do much for you. That's what love is, and that's what love isn't. Let's, uh, let's thank our kids for helping us figure out what love is and what, what love isn't. And, um, you know, we all know about those sisters throwing up. It just happens sometimes. So you never know what they're going to say. Uh, this is the second week in a series uh, talking about that topic, what love is and what love isn't. And right out of the gate, I've, as I've thought about this a lot in the last couple of weeks, I think it's important to say that we live into both of those things sort of without even knowing it and maybe not recognizing what we're doing we we get in relationships we try this out and we find out through trial and error and more importantly through god's grace at work in our lives what love is and what love isn't and first corinthians 13 which we read together is an entry point into the whole book of first corinthians which is not just a, a squishy love poem about uh, about something that we all get right. It is, uh, it is written into a community of people that's struggling to figure out what love is and what love isn't. And um, into the gap that we all experience between what we hope love will be and then when we try to live it out. That, that, that sometimes uh, is the, the, the very struggle of our relationships, the gap between figuring out how to, to love and then to, um, to, to see that in the light of God's story, that somehow that is part of God's work in us, that we're, that we're called up to in, in 1 Corinthians, not just any kind of love, but agape love. I think most of us feel pretty inadequate to that. And most of us have failed at it, which means that we're in good company. And we're in good, good company of those who are in the, the scriptures, as uh, the, the, in this case, Paul's writing to folks who are, who are in that same struggle. So we're going to try to figure this out together. Last week, we talked about what love is. Uh, and the idea guiding both last week and this week is that we're trying to reclaim the power of the word, not only in our understanding, but in our, in our lives and the, way, the, way, the way, way we live it out. That, that love is not always the thing that we, 
uh, are doing, even when we use the word. We gotta reclaim the word a bit. And part of how we reclaim it is through the trial of er and error of not always getting it right, figuring out what love is not. Paul calls us to this kind of love when he writes, love is patient, long-suffering, and kind. And there's, there's positives in that list. It always protects, it always hopes, it always perseveres, it trusts. But then as Paul kind of goes back and forth, what we find is about two-thirds of those descriptors are in the negative. Well, love is, is this, but it's not this. It's this, it's not this. Because Paul is writing to a, a group of people who's struggling to live that out. And what we're discovering in the early church, this call up to love in the name of Jesus, has been somehow co-opted in the normal ways of relating to people in the church in Corinth. This is just what people do. And what we find in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul right out of the gate, we actually read this a couple weeks ago, we're kind of settling here for a bit, uh, is we see the problem. In fact, what I want you to listen for as we go to that scripture again is the problem that Paul sees. And then why that's such a big problem. So let's look together. In 1 Corinthians 1, starting with verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, I said this uh, previously, it'd be funny to uh, Chloe sitting there going, oh my gosh, he just named my name as, I've, as they're reading this out loud. Um, someone's told us that it's not going well, basically. Chloe's told us it's not going well and that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, another says, I follow Apollos, another says, I follow Cephas or Peter, still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified you, for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And then there's this funny exchange. I thank God, he says, that I didn't baptize any, well, except for Crispus and Gaius, and so that no one could say I baptized in my name. So he's like kind of well, goes to there for a little bit and then comes back. It says this, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, which is we're, we're, we're naming that as what really, the discovery through God of what love really is through Christ but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So let's talk about what Paul sees as the problem. And it's a problem that we all can relate to. He names it as division, that there are divisions among you, that the, the community is not reflecting the love of Jesus, the unity of Jesus that, that is, is possible. Uh, that there is alignment under certain personalities. So there are, some are saying we're with them and some are saying we're with them. And uh, there is this human tendency toward birds of a feather flocking together. Uh, we might call that tribalism, you know, where we align under, you know, different things. And, and that can be fun. I mean, the, the, it's just a very human tendency to do this, to get together with people who are like us. Uh, we just got back, Jenny and I, uh, yesterday from the ACC, the Atlantic Coast Conference swim meet where our son was swimming. And um, uh, you, it's a big deal to, to kind of compete at that level. And anybody who's been to any sporting event knows how this goes. We come into the, this big swim venue and right across the back of the room are all the flags of all the schools in the conference, the, the tribal colors, so to speak of that group. And you have different groups kind of dressed different ways, but everybody, including the parents, is there in their own garb and in their own color. As parents uh, of U of L, uh, U of L parents, I was expecting applause, didn't get any. Um, uh, 
as, as U of L parents, we get an email that tells us what color to what where what day so that we get this right. And then everybody kind of gets in their groups and cheers for their people under their colors. This is a very human thing. This has been going on for as long as there's been people, right? Well, so this is our first year. Luke's a sophomore. He didn't go last year. He's he got to go this year. We're so excited. We're showing up in our colors. Uh, at one point, somebody said, go, go cards. And I'm like, how did they know? And then I looked, and I'm like, well, that's why. Because I just decked out in that. And um, I was never a cards fan before Luke went to UofL, so I can just say that. Uh, Duke's also in that conference, right? Yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> but all the parents are into this. And you've got the added element that this is their kids, right? So, so now you're, like, you're invested in a different level. Well, so this is our first time, as I said. So we um, got instructions. When you get there, they'll tell you where to sit because they've got a seating chart so that you can sit with your group. And I thought, oh, that's so nice. <laughs> like, we don't have to, like, figure this out. We don't have to save seats. Nobody has to get there early. And I've stood outside of swim venues for hours to get the right seat, gotten a fight over having to go to the bathroom years ago. I mean, there's just a lot to that. How nice of them to give us a seating chart. And then I discovered the real reason. Last year, everybody's dressed up in their garb. Everybody's into it. The parents, you know, are kind of like one group is sitting by another group. There was some tailgating involved, apparently, previous to this. And so people were a little loosened up. And some parents started bickering with each other. And then one of them started using creative hand gestures in, in the venue. And then there's the, the two dads get into it, and then the, the people come around them, and there's like, a, this is their kid's sporting event. How many of you have been to a sporting event where a fight almost broke out? It's tribalism, right? It's just, it's kind of what we do. So we got a seating chart. It's like we're in grade school, right? You guys can't sit by each other anymore because you don't know how to behave with one another. It's just a basic human thing. So... Uh, take that idea. A few weeks ago, you may have heard some of us went to Camp Lucon to um, do some projects up there. There were nine or ten of us that drove up and spent the day. Did some awesome work. Appreciate those of you who were part of that. And um, as we're driving back from basically from Brownsville area, uh, we noticed some churches on different sides of the street along the road of different denominations. You kind of see where I'm going with this. And uh, we got into a conversation about why there are different groups. And uh, one of the guys in, the, in my back seat said, you know, I'm from my town uh, in uh, rural Kentucky. Th those two denominations are on opposite sides of the street. And they're both like praying each other into hell every Sunday, right? <laughs> First Corinthians 1, right? And, uh, and then this question. Uh, and I did not expect it, you know, just sort of doing a work trip at Luca. And someone in the back seat said, do you think that is just the basic human tendency to tribalism? Yeah, I think, I think that's it. And, what, and, and this is the thing that Paul names. We naturally like people who are like us. Funny thing about the swim parent thing, like we're, we're college swim parents now, like through the years and, you know, like you do travel sports, you kind of get to know these families and, it, you know, you build life with them. In college, it's kind of different. Like we don't, they're from different parts of the world, different parts of the country. We don't know them, but we're wearing the same color, so we're in it together, right? It's just that powerful. We like people who are like us. That is a very human thing. And Paul sees that as a, as a problem 
not because it's bad that we like people, but because it, that thing is far less than the transforming thing that, that he sees happening in the church. That we are not just another tribe to be against that tribe over there. We don't align under different personalities. And so that's the problem. That's what's happening. And he describes in that passage why he thinks it's so, so important. And it's a powerful phrase. He says, lest the cross be emptied of its power. Now let that sit for a second. This thing that we naturally do has the ability to water down the whole deal. The boundary-breaking love revealed in the cross is so powerful that it transforms all of our human relationships. And if it doesn't, then it's, it's, the danger is it's emptied of its power. And we do that, don't we? Like, in, 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 in when, we, when we talk about what love isn't, that's essentially the struggle. We, it's not that we're always hateful people. We're just people who are not maybe as fully loving as we're called to be. We let it be something less than it is, and then we call it love. And that's the struggle. We like people who are like us. Several years ago, I've told this story some, some, several times, actually. In 2009, our leaders were gathering together to talk about different aspects of our, our church and trying to set vision and direction moving forward. And we were talking about how, in, in we have this conversation that's come up often since. You know it, too. In church, we sort of just gather with people who are like us. And there's a lot to that. It's not easy to, to work through, and that's, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that. But the, it, some, we were talking about that, and somebody said something really funny. He said, you know, it's easy to kind of like people who are like us, right? And then he acted it out. He said, I look at you, and you're like me. And I'm like, you're awesome. And then you say, no, you're awesome. And they're like, no, you're awesome. And, like, that doesn't sound that exciting to us. <laughs> like, we're trying to do something more than just looking at the other person who's like me and worshiping the thing in them that I actually like because it's the thing that, that helps me see me. What we're talking about is worshiping a, a, a God who loved us very different than you're awesome and you're awesome and you're awesome. And that's a powerful thing to let sit. Jesus talks about this in Luke 6. Let's go to this scripture. As he describes, much like Paul does, what love is. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. Someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. If you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. You will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. And then this last line, be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Whenever you hear the word mercy in scripture, by the way, kind of as, as an aside, uh, mercy always has some element of healing to it. 
like the, 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 the word, in, especially in the Old Testament, uh, and then the, the idea that carries forth in the New Testament is like it is a balm rubbed on a wound. Be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful is a, a way of saying, let the love of God through you bring healing. And that's a high calling. And again, it's something that we all live into and we fall short of. And so as I've been thinking this week about how to describe what love is was last week, what love isn't today, this is the summary. And at first, I wonder if it will not sound that profound to you. <laughs> so let it sit for a second. Here it goes. Love is not the same as like. Love is not the same as like. As we think about the most basic thing we can say about what love isn't, it is not this watered-down version uh, of like. And like is not just a lesser form of love. In fact, here, good is actually the enemy of great. That when we do this thing where we just like the people who are like us, when we see our relationships as something less than the place where the gospel comes alive, the love of God comes alive in human interaction, that is not a, a, water, a, a lesser version of love. It is kind of the opposite of love. Because love is much more transforming than that. And so 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13 goes through the, um, the way that plays out. It gives us a list of what love isn't. And, um, and so I want to put these on the screen because it is sort of like a poem. It is a, it's really visual language. Uh, and so we're going to just roll through it. Knowing full well that we've all done this. We've, we've tried to love, and this is what came out. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy, Paul says. And that word, uh, jealous, uh, is like a, it, it, it sounds like water boiling, boiling over in Greek. Uh, so that the image is sort of like it bubbles up in us. You know, you feel that jealousy, that envy, that frustration that just bubbles over. And who of us hasn't felt that thing? It doesn't boast, which means it doesn't draw attention to itself. And in a selfie culture, in a social media culture, like that's a little bit of a word of, uh, of, of warning, isn't it? It doesn't boast. It doesn't show off. It doesn't say, look at me. It's not proud, Paul says. That word uh, it also has a sound component to it. It is uh, sometimes translated puffed up. But what he means is, is that sound that the, the bellows make when like, whoosh, 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 you know, like so that when, you know, like you feel like a little bit of vo void or vulnerability, like you're puffing yourself up so that you can you can handle life. He's like, that's not going to get you there. And it is not rude. That word is literally formless. It's like unbecoming. It's spineless. It's like an amoeba. Like just going through kind of squishy in life. So Paul summarizes, uh, love doesn't seek its own things. I think that maybe is the summary statement of the whole thing. It's not about seeking your own thing. It's not sharp and cutting, he says. It doesn't log how other people could have done it right. And I think that is a message that is important for a couple kinds of our relationships. Let's think about application for a second. Where does that message need to take root in our lives? And the first is maybe the most obvious. 
Where do we need, where do we see this playing out? Where we discover where love isn't? Well, it's in our closest relationships, isn't it? And the people that we are around. Because here's the discovery. The closer you get to somebody and the more you know them, the more you discover that you're not actually alike. Let's use marriage as an example. How many young couples who are young and cute and, and idealistic and living on love, how many of them go into it thinking, we're just going to naturally grow together as life goes on, right? Like, that's, that's the way it will be. We'll just find out how much we're alike, and we'll become, like, we'll become one just sort of naturally. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands if that's your experience in that kind of relationship. And don't elbow your spouse right now. Because what you discover in your closest relationships is all the ways that you're different, right? And you discover that what you're trying to do is make them like you. Like, that's what we do. Why aren't you thinking like me? Why aren't you acting like me? It would be a lot easier if you did it the way I wanted you to do it. You should just load the dishwasher the way I say. That's not hypothetical uh, for somebody else's marriage. <laughs> Jenny and I had this conversation this week. It's like almost like God's sense of humor. Like, put two people who are very different together and see how it goes. Right? That's marriage. Um, I actually saw this picture. I hope w no, none of you will know these peop people. This is a picture from an airport far away, but I had to laugh. Um, this couple had probably clearly just gone on their honeymoon, and they were coming back. And I, Im I, I imagined them, like, going uh, on their honeymoon, honeymoon, going that way, being so in love and, and, um, and so together. And then the, the next picture kind of gets a little closer. It, and, and they were just married. But on the way home, they just didn't realize they had flipped it and were walking on the other side of each other and it turned already on the way home from the honeymoon to marry just. Now I'm sure those folks um, have, have a wonderful marriage. This has been you know, over a year ago, so I'm sure that they're still in very much in love with each other. Uh, but it did sort of make me laugh how just married can, can switch to married just and that's kind of the point, right? This week we did a uh, vow renewal ceremony in this room, and nine of our, uh, of our couples, eight uh, from the church, and then a couple that just searched on the internet about vow renewal cer ceremonies for Valentine's Day came and were a part of that, which is super cool. And uh, we got some pictures of that uh, as they came to renew their vows for various reasons. Some were uh, uh, at an, a particular anniversary, some had not uh, taken their original vows in the church. Some had, like uh, David and Doris, they had been married for 43 and a half years, they said. There were 200 years of marriage represented in the room on Monday night. And this is what I said as they, as they came. Our lives were built on powerful covenants, like God's covenant with us, uh, that shape our lives, that call us up to love and to um, special relationship with him and a special responsibility with each other. And in the same way, we make covenants with one another. Uh, Mark and LaDonna there, I love that picture. He, he's not throwing her on the ground. He's dipping her, by the way. <laughs> I told Mark I was going to say this. Uh, Mark walks in the room, was the first one that shows up, and he goes, I'm here for the marriage reversal ceremony. <laughs> uh, but the thing that we said is that God's covenant with us doesn't waver, but our covenant with God and with each other needs renewing. That's the, that's the whole point. And how often do we need to do that to be reminded what love really is? Well, we, we do it every Sunday, don't we? We come together and uh, we get a, a reminder. It's not a shot in the arm. It's a redirection 
That's what repentance is, by the way. I think biblically, repentance is very often for the people of God because of this very thing, because then we start using the words like love, and then we forget that we're not actually doing the thing that we're talking about. It's just human tendency to miss the mark. And so repentance is a, it literally means change the way you're thinking. We've got to rethink things. And marriage is an example of how we do that. But all of our relationships need that kind of renewing, that kind of reset. And, um, and so that um, is important because we do build lives and legacies and families on those covenants. Recently, um, actually on Valentine's Day, one of, our, um, one of our members passed away. And she and her husband had been married 62 years. And um, in those moments at the hospice house when you're with people, you know, it, those relationships kind of get broken down to the, the most essential parts, right? And um, what I found myself saying to, to, to him as his wife of 62 years passed away was the message that we proclaim at a lot of funerals, that we believe that nothing in life or in death can separate us from the love of God through Christ Jesus our Lord. And to be able to experience that in human relationships is the gift of marriage. But it's the gift of all of our interactions with each other. Knowing full well that we're going to fall short of that and miss it and sometimes not be able to, to find it with one another. And that's important. To, that's why we keep showing up for our closest relationships. It's why we keep showing up to God. Uh, so let's, that's one category. Let me take you to another extreme. Where do we need to see this lived out and where do we struggle? I think it's actually in our daily interactions with the people that we're not super close to. That maybe one of the most powerful redemptive spaces in our lives and in our world is in those little interactions that look like liking each other with the people who serve us, with the people who are out and about in community. We might know their name, but we don't know their story. And we're never going to maybe be have intimate, vulnerable relationships with them, but those relationships can also be redemptive Jesus encounters, a chance to rehumanize this thing. It looks like like, but that also could be love. And it's not always, is it? We kind of let that get watered down, too. And, and sometimes, quite honestly, the things that Paul talks about, being rude, or self-centered, or just trying to get our way, they're lived out there. Like part of what we get frustrated about in society is that those relationships have become dehumanized. And we need to hear the call up. The church needs to hear the call up. That can be loving and redemptive too. And we all live into what love isn't there, I think. So uh, after, uh, it was like Christmas time. It was um, in the time period where we had a lot going on and we had already gotten a gift card. Jenny and I had already gotten a gift card to eat out. I know this because uh, of a couple things, uh, but basically we were at the end of the 11 o'clock service. I had preached three times. Jenny has been serving in Kid Zone quite a bit and I think had been there uh, a couple times. And we were at, at you know, the end of the day and we looked at each other. We don't have food in the fridge and we don't have anything made and we have a gift card burning a hole in our pocket. So that was an easy decision. We're going to a restaurant after church and we went to church, uh, went to the restaurant with the after church crowd, which you know, by the way, is notorious for being the worst tipping crowd. Lord have mercy. 
Love is not that. Um, and so uh, we're there with the, the people from other churches. The, the people, we, none of them were, were Broadway people. Usually you can't go out to the restaurant and not see a Broadway person. All the people who were there who had clearly been to church had gone to other churches, which makes the story easier to tell. So, um, <laughs> uh, so we are, uh, we're, our, our waitress um, is interacting with us. She was not the most cheerful person but she was really nice. And it was just her demeanor. She wasn't overly bubbly, but as uh, you know, we talked to her, we, we had interaction with her, she was perfectly nice, did very good service, and we were coming to the end of our meal having had a very good experience. Uh, this is uh, COVID era, right? So like the booth next to us directly was visible to us through a plexiglass kind of screen. You could see the people right there, but it sort of did give you a sense of distance. And I, we watched it play out, the people that were at the, that um, booth with our same waitress. And um, near the end of their meal, after this lady had interacted, and the waitress had interacted with this lady several times, our, the, our waitress goes to their booth and um, the lady is there, she's got her church clothes on and a nativity brooch on her sweater, representing the incarnation of God, the love of Jesus in the world, lest we forget. And uh, she says to our waitress, are you having a good day? And our waitress said, yes. And then this lady said, well, do me a favor. Tell your face. Yeah. I mean, so shocking, in fact, that I sat there like three or four feet away, like saying, did that just happen? Now, I, I told that story um, at 8.15, and someone came up and said, you know, this person could have been dealing with dementia, and that could be the case, and we kind of maybe lose our filter at times. So that's always possible. But I'll tell you, as I thought about that interaction, I really, I was very, I, I actually, I got up to talk to the lady about it, and Jenny grabbed me and sat me right back down uh, <laughs> and said, what are you... Uh, like local pastor, like every, every headline that begins with local pastor, it's never good, right? So, but I, I reflected on that uh, a lot in, the, in literally every day for a week thinking about that interaction. And I thought two, two things. One, like there are a lot of other ways that thing could go down. If you notice that that person is not bright and cheery like they need to be, we're, our job as Christians is not to use our power to force them to do the thing that we demand that they do. Like, Jesus came to serve. We need to learn how to serve our servants. And so there are a lot of ways you can make that lady smile, the waitress smile. You could tell her something nice about herself. If you're in this scenario, like, say something nice uh, and, and help her have a, put a smile on her face. Or maybe make a human, for goodness sakes, inter, in connection with her and rehumanize that relationship. Or leave her such a big tip that when you walk out the door, she's going to start laughing. There are a lot of ways to do that. That's just not one, of, that's not one of them. That's not, that's not what love is. And then I thought, this is maybe more reflective uh, for, for me, like how many of my interactions with folks maybe aren't that rude, but are definitely not the thing that they could be. So go to lunch and tip people, uh, for sure. Tip your waiters and waitresses as an act of love and care and find a way to rehumanize those relationships because the thing that we're doing maybe isn't love and we think of ourselves as loving people. Hear the good news. The kind of love that changes everything has already been offered. So as we discover what love isn't, 
and as we experience the gap between what we hope love is and what we do, the good news of the gospel is that into that space has been inserted the love of God through Jesus Christ. And that is the thing that transforms everything. As we mess this up, we, we confess that, we repent, and we discover what love is again and again as Jesus fills the gap. The love that has been brought to us was the love known before only in Trinity, in God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. And this perhaps gives us, as we close, a way of thinking about the kind of love that the world actually does need, the kind that has already been offered. Because in the Father, Son, and Spirit, what we do not have is likeness. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit as the church has established for millennia, are different. They are distinct. They are not the same, and yet they are one. That's the mystery of it. If you under, don't understand Trinity, that's fine. Nobody does. But here's the beautiful thing. It's the thing that we're, we're talking about. The kind of love that the world needs is demonstrated in the very nature of God. Distinctness, difference, but also togetherness. And reverence. The ancient church fathers and mothers had a name for this. They called it perichoresis, which means the divine dance, which Martha does every Sunday, by the way. <laughs> Here's what Pastor Tim Keller says about the divine dance. It's a description of Trinity, and it is a description of the kind of love that we find in Christ. Each of the divine persons centers upon the others. Love is not self-seeking. Do you hear that First Corinthians language? None demanded, demands that the others revolve around him. He doesn't draw attention to himself. Each voluntarily circles the other two, pouring love, delight, and adoration into them. Each person of the Trinity loves, adores, defers to, and rejoices in the others. And there's the next slide. That creates a dynamic, pulsating dance of joy and love. As I said, the Greek church fathers and mothers had a word for this, perichoresis. Notice that our word choreography is in there. It literally means to dance or to flow around. And this is the vision of our relationships. Not that we like people who are like us, but that we love people who are different than us in the divine dance that has been done for us. Because we were not like Jesus, and he came to dance anyway. And so may it be with us. Let's pray together. God, we confess that we discover what love isn't through living. And yet we recognize that that was not an obstacle to you. It, you've actually woven that into the story. And so we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. That we have failed to be an obedient church. That we've not done your will and we've rebelled against your love, and we have liked each other and thought it was good enough. In our closest relationships and in our daily interactions, of this we repent, we change our way of thinking, and we renew our hope for the love that has been offered in Christ to be demonstrated and experienced in our relationships with one another. Would you renew our hope that that is even possible? And then would you make it possible as a gift of your grace? For that's the only way it is. That we trust that it is possible. 
that nothing in life or death can separate us from your love for us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we pray it in his name.